Hello, I'm Rob Smith. It's time to take a talk on the wild side. Yep, this is the brand new podcast brought to you from the Kent Wildlife Trust. Over the next few months, the plan is to take a look at the incredible work that's going on to protect and enhance the natural world here in the UK. We all know that Britain is one of the most nature-depleted countries on Earth. There have been alarming drops in wildlife numbers over the last few decades, and if we don't do something about it, then it could be disastrous for us all. But the good news is that there are people doing something about it. And I want to share some of those inspiring and energising stories with you. We're going to be going on safaris in the Kent countryside. We'll meet bisons and beavers and badgers and explore the wildly different habitats that they live in, from forests to marshes, open hillsides to back gardens, even taking a look at the UK's only desert. Yeah, we have a desert in Kent. Who knew? And we'll be meeting the doers, the people who are actually getting their hands dirty in making Kent a wilder place to live. The rangers, the experts, the volunteers, and crucially, the farmers who own so much of our land. In this first episode, we'll be hearing from Evan Bowen-Jones, who's the boss of Kent Wildlife Trust. I think that um, in the past, many people, many politicians have thought of nature as just a nice to have. I'll be going on safari in Ore. Where? No, Ore. Ore Marshes near Faversham. So do you spend most of your life in waders then? Yeah, I spend a fair amount of my time in, uh, <laughs> in wellies and waders. That's very true, especially in winter. And I'll be visiting a regenerative farm in Shaddockshurst near Ashford where they practice mob grazing. Your grass is growing faster. You're getting more forage. So you can actually carry more cattle than if you're grazing it down and the grass is struggling to regrow from having been nibbled short. It's going to be a wild ride. So come on, let's take a talk on the wild side. So, first things first, a conversation with Evan Bowen-Jones to set the tone because he's the chief executive of Kent Wildlife Trust, the top man, the head honcho, the big cheese. I met him in the garden at Thailand Barn, which is the nerve centre of the Trust, a 17th century building nestled at the bottom of Bluebell Hill, which sounds idyllic, doesn't it? But it is also sandwiched in between the A229 and the M20, so uh, you may hear the odd bit of traffic noise and passing aircraft. Such is the reality of modern life and, of course, why there is such an urgent need for protecting and enhancing all the wilder bits of countryside we have left. It's a lovely day. How it are you is. feeling? Uh, very good, yeah. It's a lovely day, isn't it? Um, yeah, great. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. I'm excited that we're actually getting to launch this podcast at last because yeah. it's something we've been talking about for a little while um, and it's a chance for you to kind of let everybody who's got any kind of connection with Kent Wildlife mm. Trust know what's going on. So it's mm. exciting times. It is, yeah. So we've just launched our Kent um, Wilder 2030 strategy. Um, and it's it's not new in terms of the fact we've been working up to it for the last kind of four years, but it is new in terms of the fact that we've realised that what we've been doing for the last four years has been really starting to get a huge amount of traction and that we can do more of it better um, and we can make a, a, an even bigger impact um, 
to heading out to 2030, which is a critical year. So what does the strategy actually mean? What do you hope to have achieved by 2030? So uh, the, the main thing, well, one of the main things we want to do as, a, as an organisation is we want to double our own land holdings and we want to have influence over a lot more of Kent through working partnership with landowners, uh, local authorities, parish councils, engaging sort of one in four people across you know, what is a very large county with a large population yeah. to really get some serious um, engagement around the fact that nature is a part of the solution, a major part of the solution to the, you know, the huge challenges we now face, um, not just in terms of kind of ecological issues, but climate as well. Because uh, we know that if we restore habitat, locks up carbon. Uh, we know that uh, in the process of, of doing that, you know, we could do things like you know, uh, cool local areas for um, local communities who are uh, you know, experiencing intense heat. So like 40 degrees we had last year. You know, yeah. If you've got a park, a uh, community woodland or whatever, you know, that becomes refuge. So these, these are, this is nature becoming a fundamental part of creating a better life for people as things potentially become quite a lot more difficult. Okay, and, and in terms of like, the journey that you've been on as somebody who works in conservation, how have you seen that change over the last 20 odd years? Because this kind of a strategy, the stuff you've just been talking about there, is radically different to how things looked back in the 90s. Mm. So I think back in the 90s, you know, the, the, um, the place of conservation in society was very much seen as uh, you know conservation organizations are there to manage little reserves which will hopefully kind of sustain wildlife uh, which is a nice to have and uh, wouldn't it be great if we had a few more hedgehogs and it would be great if we had more hedgehogs and you know uh, wildlife is inherently important in its own value but what's become clearer and clearer over the last decade is that you know as you restore wildlife and habitat you get all of these benefits for society and those benefits are becoming more and more important at a time when our climate is changing when we have you know uh, threats around being able to produce food uh, to feed people if we don't have enough pollinators um, and we've got you know uh, insect abundance really nosediving at the moment so rebuilding habitat rebuilding wildlife populations has suddenly become important and, and obviously so to people and more and more people decision makers are realizing that so we've got more political traction there's um more money coming into the system so we can genuinely start to pursue a much higher degree of ambition and okay. it can't be about just preserving little areas with um sort of relics wildlife populations in so in practical terms then mm. What do you actually want people to do? How can they join in? How can they help? It's on, it's on a number of levels. So first of all, people can uh, and should take care of their own patch better. And taking care of your own patch, you know, that could be your window box or it could be your garden or it could be your allotments or whatever. But increasingly, it actually means doing less, I think. Oh, right, so, okay. you know, <laughs> this doing, is a good call to arms. We want you to I do think, less. I think so. You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's about more. using less chemicals uh -huh. is, a, is a really basic thing because the main thing that is driving insect declines, which is then driving uh, declines of insectivorous birds, uh, one of the major factors in that anyway, is the overuse of chemicals. Um, and that means that you, you know, if, if you can be, for example, in your allotment or in your garden, 
uh, um, uh, mowing less and using less chemicals, you will have a, um, an immediate practical impact in helping to restore wildlife. It's one of those things, it's, it's an interesting sort of mental switch you have to flick. Because I have this conversation with my wife in the garden and yeah. she says, is that a plant or just a weed? Yeah, and of course and the actually, answer is there's no such thing as a weed. It's just, it's just a plant that you've decided you don't want in a given place. And, and um, you know, I've had kind of near, near uh, physical altercations on a, uh, on an allotment that we were looking after where this guy was, you know, really saw red in the fact that we had foxgloves, which were flowering, and he said the, the seeds were going to go everywhere and would cause him, you know, to kind of almost like lose his life's work of tending his allotment. Um, he'd have to pick out these these noxious weeds. And of course, foxgloves are amazing plants in terms of being yeah. uh, nectar providers. If you want to see a bumblebee, yeah, exactly. find a foxglove. Exactly. So, so there is a huge, and sort of, I, th- I guess we shouldn't underestimate how much of a, a, a change in people's mentality that is. And of course, that can be scaled up. So local authorities shouldn't be strumming on of verges, um, you know, to, to make them neater um there are some areas where you know for line of sight around roundabouts or corners or whatever you know they 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 do need to make sure they they get too overgrown but you know local authorities parish councils individuals uh companies who are in charge of land they can all be doing this stuff actually making it a bit less neat and so that's at one end of the scale just letting people just do less let things grow a bit wilder Mm -hmm. where they are people want to be more actively involved What can they do? Do you want them to become volunteers, political lobbyists, what? All of the above. I mean, you know, again, it, it depends on your personal appetite and, and the time you've got available and the resources you've got available. Uh, again, um, you know, obviously as, as a charity, we depend upon uh, the goodwill of people um, in multiple dimensions. You know, lots of our donors are individuals who want to give money to us to do more for wildlife. Um, Equally, we do have a really strong, uh, vibrant kind of volunteering uh, uh, group, um, which number has numbered in, in, in its thousands. Um, and we get them out um, and about on our reserves uh, to help us actually manage those areas so people can become part of you know, going and doing practical things, which actually then make them feel better. So it's brilliant for your mental well-being to get out and do this stuff. So it's, it's again, it's about the value that being involved in conservation actually provides to individuals and society as a whole. So there's a whole spectrum of stuff. And corporates, you know, private companies, again, volunteering, you can do that, you know, for your workforce. Um, you can get your workforce out and, and you can get them both delivering really good stuff on the ground for conservation, but experiencing those benefits, being more focused, feeling better about going back in and, and doing more work. Now, I'm going to ask a sort of a, a very big question now mm. on the basis that You've been involved in this for how, how long now? How long have you been actively a campaigner, environmentalist? What, how would you describe yourself? How would I describe myself? Um, uh, I, well, I've been involved in conservation in various forms for, I guess, around 25, 30 years. Right, okay. So um, you've been right in the thick of it, and there's plenty to get depressed about, yeah. annoyed about the way yeah. the world is. Is there any cause for optimism? Because it's very easy to get gloomy about all this yeah, stuff there's, there's 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 huge amount to be optimistic about first off the fact that you know people are actually taking nature seriously in terms of it providing 
a survival function for people going forwards into the future means that it is more important, which means that we should be able to do more. And we're, we're, you know, we are now placed to have more impact than ever before. So that it, for me is a, is a huge plus. Um, secondly, you do actually see, maybe not here so much, but in other parts of the world, you know, it's filtering through into the political system. So France has just introduced a ministry ecological transition on the path to becoming an ecological civilization. Now, when you see that kind of institutional change, which means it's going to be uh, uh, sort of educating all its civil servants in the basics of ecology, you know, the potential for change now is huge. I'm not saying that, that unfortunately the UK is in exactly that position, but why couldn't we be? Why couldn't we be doing similar things? Um, and so I think that you know, we are on the brink of some potentially very positive changes at a time when the stakes are extremely high. So on the, on the flip side of that is we need to do these things pretty quickly. Bigger, better, faster. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, um, okay. And one of the other projects that, that is running in parallel with the Wildlife Trust is to do with carbon capture, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so we have set up a number of subsidiaries to be able to um, sort of do lateral um, supportive um, pieces of work around the main World Account 2030 strategy, one of which is um, uh, a group we set up called World of Carbon, and that is trying to do uh, carbon offsetting right. So no more kind of greenwashing, um, only uh, selling the units, the carbon units, which will be uh, produced from restoring native habitat to companies which are actually taking action on carbon reduction. So not letting them off the hook not allowing them to carry on polluting, but recognising that many companies are not going to be able to get to net zero immediately. And most aren't. In a future podcast, I hope we're going to get the opportunity to wander around one of the sites and have a look at what that's actually doing. That would be great. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is an example of nature-based solutions, which is a, an inherent uh, part of our kind of core triangle. So the way that we see really scaling conservation opportunities is acquiring or, or um, having positive management over more land, as we said earlier, um, managing that land through a, a what we call wilding or rewilding approach, so restoring it into better habitat but that, and then allowing uh, animals to actually manage that, that area for us in a better way than we're capable of with you know, bill hooks and chainsaws, um, and then financing it through nature-based solutions. So getting payments from society, recognising that value that, that wildlife and nature has to put it back into the system and create this kind of virtuous circle. And on uh, let, let's let, let, lots of macro stuff we've been talking mm. about there. Let's go a little bit micro just for a moment. What are the projects that are knocking around that Kent Wildlife Trust is doing at the moment that you're most excited about and keep finding, your talk, keep finding yourself talking to people about? So we, we've got loads of good stuff going on and lots more in the pipeline. We've obviously had a huge amount of publicity over the bison project. The bison project isn't actually about the bison. It's about connecting up that landscape and making it wilder. So again, it's about getting those ecosystem engineers out into that woodland complex to manage it into the future in a way that's better for wildlife, um, building biodiversity, building bioabundance, making it more climate resilient. So that's a really exciting project. And there's lots more to come with that one. We are this summer going to be releasing uh, red billed chuff onto the white cliffs of Dover and the landscape around there. So that, those will be the first free flying red billed chuff 
in Kent for over 200 years. Um, we're looking at... I'm really looking forward to seeing that happening as well. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Um, we're looking at pine martins as well, uh, which are slowly coming back into the south of England, um, having been um, sort of wiped out um, in the first half of last century. Um, and those, you know, have a huge potential for helping to control grey squirrel, which damage um, uh, woodlands, young woodlands. Mm -hmm. And so actually can be a really positive engagement tool for working with the, the, the woodland owner community. And that in turn could then lead to red squirrels coming back in. And then on the marine side, there are similar things that we can be doing, applying uh, habitat restoration in the marine environment. Um, which we are earlier stage on and again it can be financed through the carbon finance route but blue carbon and restoration of the seabed which would then lead to stronger fisheries and, and livelihood benefits for coastal communities is another thing which we'll be working on over the next sort of five or so years. Well I mean as, as somebody who's just getting involved in this at the beginning end with the podcast I'm really looking forward to seeing a lot of this stuff happening over over the next year or so it's going to be exciting great stuff and i look forward to talking to you about it again and again and again indeed <laughs> <laughs> thanks Evan. no problem at all evan bowen jones there the chief executive of kent wildlife trust chatting to me in the garden at thailand barn So, the other day, I went on safari in Kent. Seriously, um, Kent Wildlife Trust does this sometimes. Uh, you can book to go on a guided walk, a safari, around one of the sites with a ranger, an expert, who monitors and manages the land. And so you can get some, some real insights into what wildlife to look out for and how the Kent Wildlife Trust actually works the landscape to try and make it as biodiverse as it can be. Well, this particular safari was at Ore Marshes, which is just outside Faversham, on the banks of the River Swale. 81 hectares of grazing marsh, crisscrossed with freshwater dikes, open water scrapes, reed beds and salt marsh. It's a place of international importance for overwintering and, at this time of year, breeding wetland birds. There were around a dozen of us turned up on a cool, breezy day in June to meet our guide, Nadia Ward. So, we will start heading up Church Road. I will just close this van. Um, and we'll walk down to the open lay-by and we'll take a look on the left-hand side at uh, what's on the scrape. So, well, Nadia, hello. Hello. Where are we? <laughs> you are at All Marshes Nature Reserve on the North Kent coast, uh -huh. just outside of Faversham and Orr Village. Right, okay. Now, we are sheltering behind these sycamore trees because <laughs> it's a really windy day today, but we're going to be going for a walk 
um, more or less around the, the marsh here. That's right. Yeah. The idea is to take a walk around what we call the East Flood, mm -hmm. which has a really large scraping open water alongside Faversham Creek. Again, it's a nice way to look at the intertidal mudflats there and the birds that are feeding. And then back along the main coastal path, the Saxon Shoreway England coastal path, mm -hmm. um, to take a look at what was previously an industrial site um, and is now part of the nature reserve. Okay, and when you say it was an industrial site, it was a huge gunpowder works, wasn't it? That's right. So um, from the mid 19th century to the early 20th century, the, sort of the whole of the North Kent marshes is being utilised for gunpowder works, lots of different munitions. And uh, ore is sort of the eastern extent of that. Right. And we've got some remaining still some of the concrete blocks where some of the buildings used to be. And presumably they came out and did that here because it was a, if it exploded, yeah. <laughs> you weren't going to damage any, exactly. any property. You're, that's it. You're relatively decent uh, distance from human habitation, mm -hmm. but you're where you know your workers need to live locally in order to, to get to work. Oh, okay. You need water. Um, and also you've got both points. You've got Faversham to get material out on, but also you've got the swale and the boats that can come in and pick those munitions up. Is there, but you can't see any of that today, can you? No, it's not particularly visible. My volunteers get to trip over it all the time <laughs> on the reserve. <laughs> um, but no, those concrete bases have disappeared under the regrowth under you know this is grazing marsh and reed bed so that's gone uh -huh. but actually our neighboring landowner has actually got some buildings that are still upright so that gives you some sense of some of what the landscape would look like right okay and what are we going to be really looking out for what what is the what are the, the, the crown jewels if you like of this this spot it'll be the birds and what brings the birds here is the fact that this is freshwater and then you've got the intertidal mudflats to go and feed out on. Right. So you've got waders, you've got ducks, you've got wildfowl. And depending on the time of year, you've got different ratios of those species. So you've got lots of black-tailed godwits that will be here in winter, aggregations of six, 700 a year. Mm -hmm. um, but in summer, we're going to have the non-breeding bar-tailed godwits that will be here on site. Um, along with some of the breeding species. So we do get sort of shell ducks, some lapwing in, a, in the local area that will breed here. Um, and then marsh harriers that like to hunt over the reserve, which right. are quite a splendid feature. Okay, we'll keep an eye out for all of those then. Now I know one of the things that you are really concerned about on the area uh, is, is people dog walking. That's right. Because that can cause a massive, particularly during bird breeding season. It is. It's a real concern for us that people like to come to a nature reserve, they like to come for a walk and they think it's good for the dog to be let off the lead. What they don't necessarily understand is that our ground, ground nesting species and some of the species that will be uh, utilising the mudflats are enormously disturbed mm -hmm. by those birds, um, uh, by, the, by the dogs. And it would be incredibly helpful. There is signage up. We have fabulous volunteers that are here on site to just engage people and say, if you could keep your dog on a lead, keep the dog on the public right of way, actually you'll see and hear far more birds. Um, and that would be fantastic for the reserve. Okay, keep your dog on a lead. <laughs> Please. There we go. So, hello. Hello. Who are you? <laughs> I'm Sue Bartlett. Hello, Sue. <laughs> so have you come on one of these things before? No. What, what do you make of it so far? It's fantastic. I'm learning such a lot. So um, why did you choose to come out on a safari rather than just wander around on your own? Um, well, I have wandered around on my own. So I came to learn a little bit more about the history, which which at the beginning, you know, she's, um, she's helped me, me learn something there. And I was hoping to just get more info on the kinds of birds 
that hang out here because uh-huh. I am sort of fairly local. Uh-huh. I like to know the birds' calls because uh-huh. it helps you identify them. <laughs> and have you seen things that you hadn't seen before yet? Or? Well, she's, she's identified this lovely pink flower, which is salsify, uh-huh. and I'd spotted that. So that, to me, is great. It's beautiful. I don't know if you've you know, noticed it yourself. And she's identified Seti's warbler, which is a first for me. I would never, I would never have worked that out, um, because the thing with the warblers is they look like little brown jobs. <laughs> you know, how do the, you, the how classic do you know LBJ? Which is, yeah. Yeah, that's right. How do you know which is which? Uh-huh. So there you go. So, and I've seen a reed bunting, which was wonderful. Um, so it's just great. So it's been a, a worthwhile thing to do. It really has, and I'm also thinking of volunteering. Um, and I'm getting a feel of the place and whether it's something that it's I feel like I could it's do. Of, it's, it's sort of slightly bleak, but just beautiful for it. it. It is. It's wonderful. And right at the start, when we met in the car park, there was a marsh harrier. Um, and she pointed out the, the marsh harrier for us. So just seeing that sort of swooping, swooping over the marshes was, it was worth it just for that. <laughs> So what do, you, what do you make of it? Have you been on safari before? No, no, not. I haven't. This is my first time. But I, I, I do some volunteering for um, further near Maidstone. So I um, sort of got to know about this through them, really. And I thought, well, I'll come along, see what's, see what's what. It's good. It's very interesting, I think. You know, I'm. Uh, I don't really know this part very well. I mean, I, I've been to the. Shipwright arms down the road, but other than that, I don't really, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's, it's often a good way to discover the countryside, well, it is, isn't it? Yeah, pub by yeah, pub. Yeah, that's, yeah, my, that's my yeah, take, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely to see the marshes and, you know, the wildlife and um, hear somebody who knows what, what they're talking about, because I certainly don't, you know, about telling us about what's, what's what you know the grazing of the cattle and uh, I find that's very interesting and uh, you know how they maintain the verges and where how the wildlife are able to run through these verges to um, you know uh, get from one place to another and the barn owls and the different birds and that. I find it's fascinating <laughs> Walking along the seawall, and uh, on my right, I've got the the mud flats of the Swale and the Isle of Sheppey on the other side of the water, and uh, and on the left we've got um, one of the grazed areas with a herd of quite, quite contented-looking Sussex cattle. They're, they're mostly lying down. But I hope it doesn't mean it's going to rain because I haven't bought a raincoat. It's not due to rain. It is cold though. It's a uh, it's a cold, breezy sort of a day, and I mean, it's, it has been an unusually cold, breezy start to the summer. We've barely had any hot days at all yet. It is lovely, though. It's properly peaceful, and it's um, it's just a beautiful spot to come to. I thoroughly recommend it. You can genuinely get away from it all. It's lovely. Uh, my name's Andrew. Hello, Andrew. So, have you been on one of these safaris before? I've been on a couple this year. I've been out to uh, uh, Ham Marshes, um, and I've been to the delightfully named Magpie Bottom near Seven Oaks, <laughs> which is where I live. <coughs> so, why come on a safari rather than just go for a wander around on your own? Well, it's um, 
the getting the explanations and seeing things and uh, and observing things that you wouldn't normally draw, uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't normally notice, and also uh, uh, learning a bit about the management of the these these reserves. And I've been surprised about how active the management is, just how much they've they've done. I've, I've always thought of these reserves as them, you know, putting putting a fence round a piece of land and, and that's it and preserving it. But actually, they're very active in uh, creating uh, a variety of habitats. Um, some by the um, uh, trust and its uh, volunteers on uh, hand marshes. Um, uh, it's the beavers that have uh, created the habitats. So it's all been very interesting. Now, in terms of the, the actual work that you're doing here, yeah. because, you, you know, as you, you look around and it looks as if there's nothing going on, but actually <laughs> there's been an amazing amount of work that's yeah. gone on here, isn't there? That's right. Well, we're probably much more visible, visible as a practical group in winter um, when I'm cutting generally quite a lot of reed, and that's just to keep areas of open water for winter, for those o overwintering uh, waterfowl particularly. Um, so we're using a lot of brush cutters, repairing fences right now, so I'm more visible than I ever am uh, in and around the reserve. Um, and it's really about working with our grazing livestock um, and looking ahead and seeing where we can make the best impact um, on site for that diversity of species. So we've got animals to graze and create those different sward heights and um, disturb the ground and there's me and my volunteers to create the wider open pools and then we just do that in rotation. So do you spend most of your life in waders then? Yeah, I spend a fair amount of my time in, uh, <laughs> in wellies and waders, that's very true, especially in winter, especially when the water levels are up. On uh -huh. um, my volunteers again, bless them. <laughs> because the other, the other word that I really, I know that you're a big fan of is mud. Oh yeah. I mud, need glorious mud. mud. Mud, glorious mud, and that's more of what I need. So on a reserve like this, it's all about your ecotones. It's all about creating those different habitats, the open mud through to the reed bed, through to the grazing marsh, through to the scrub, through to some of the sort of taller scrub and trees that we get here. And all of those, those spaces where they meet are the most important. And for birds particularly well in fact throughout the year but particularly in winter they need those areas of mud both to feed and to roost and so i'm having a bit of a battle with the reed bed at the moment right but we are winning okay <laughs> we'll keep an eye out for the reeds as well then um and kind of just on a bit of a personal note tell me a bit about you how long have you actually been here how much has it changed since you've been here so i've been here since um 2021 so i've been here two years um, and my predecessor had started quite a lot of the work on the rebed on what we call the West Flood. And so I've seen that change. And my volunteers, importantly, have also seen that change in the last four and a half years mm -hmm. of battling through to open up what had kind of become quite solid rebed. And now we're getting more Because you're using cattle to do that as well, aren't we're, you? So it's both. We're using cattle and we're using brush cutters, um, is the reality. You do still need the power tool to come in afterwards. Cattle do a great job, and our, our Sussex herd are fantastic. They love the water. They get in there. The calves get really excited. And they are a nightmare to find in the rebed in the middle of summer. That's quite a task. But... All of this is about kind of creating that diversity of habitat, to have your standing reed, to have your grass, to have these pools of open water in winter as well as in summer. Because obviously in summer they're going to be a refuge. 
and we need the, the, the invertebrates from the water. You're going to be able to see hobby here in spring if we've got the dragonflies that they need to feed on. Well, it's been lovely having a chat, Nadia. Thank you ever so much for taking us for our, uh, our walk around the marshes. <laughs> it's been breezy. Yeah, it's been <laughs> a breezy day. pretty bitter. But it's a beautiful spot. Um, and what's the plan for the next couple of years? Have you got big plans for doing more things here? Yep. Trying to get that mud edge along the east scrape would be really, really key. Keeping an eye on our pheasant farm extension where we've done some work um, with the RSPB as part of the Greener Thames Fund last year. Keeping an eye on that vegetation regrowth, finding out our grazing levels. Um, and kind of really working to help engage more people with the reserves. So new interpretation, more engagement volunteers, getting people to come to site and come on a walk with us mm -hmm. so that they can learn something about this really fascinating site that has gone from being managed for grazing through industry and then back to nature. Great stuff. Nadia, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> That was great. That was a morning really well spent. And special thanks to Sue, Charlie and Andrew for being game and having a chat with me as we were walking around. There was so much to see, I couldn't fit it all in. There were seals basking on the mud flats and an artesian well that produces a constant stream of pure, naturally filtered water that I'm told is so good, one of the locals uses it to make some really good home brew. Well, if you want to uh, visit Ore Marshes yourself, and I do recommend it, then the, uh, the details are in the podcast description. And as always, you can always find the details of all the sites that Kent Wildlife Trust manages on the website. You can sign up for a safari as well there, of course. Uh, and the website is kentwildlifetrust.org.uk. Now, farmers and farming. This is a really key element to this podcast because I want to talk to farmers about what they do and why they do it because farmers manage around 70% of the land in the UK so any talk around biodiversity and landscape scale regeneration that doesn't include farmers is kind of missing the point it's just not going to happen so for this first episode I went to visit Green Farm in Shaddockshurst which is part of a cluster of farms in Kent working together alongside Kent Wildlife Trust to try and increase the wildlife friendliness of their practices now, Green Farm has a coffee morning every Thursday and an eco-school for toddlers to experience the countryside at first hand. And the first thing you're going to hear is some of the mums visiting the farm for that. And then you'll hear from Martin Richmond Coggan as we go on a trek to find his cattle and talk about mob grazing. Mob grazing? I hear you cry. What's that? All will be revealed... <laughs> Who are you? Um, I'm Helen Dow and this is my son Gabriel. Hello Gabriel. So why have you come here? What do you like about it? Um, well we've been coming here um, basically since we've been living in Shadockhurst like for the last seven years. Um, it's just so tranquil um, and there's so much going on here. Um, I've been involved in the community garden, I've done volunteering um, and it's just great for the kids. We've got two children um, to see animals and just be at one with nature really. That's why we like coming here. I mean, it's quite a spot, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely beautiful. And we just feel so lucky to have it just down at the end of our road. It's just like a paradise. It's like being on holiday. Um, Alison. And why are you here today? Um, so we're here for Eco School. 
for like with my son. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is that good? Why do you do it? Um, cuz he loves outdoors. Um, get to know about nature. Um, he gets to run around for a couple of hours and yeah, it's good fun. Yeah. And what do you think of this place and how they do oh, it? Oh, it's beautiful. We st- we actually stay after eco school and eat our lunch and we bring as you can see I've got the packed lunches with us. So um, yeah, no it's a really nice really nice venue, like a little hidden treasure really. Yeah. And what's okay. his name? This is Arturo. Hello. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm Kirsty. And why are you here today? Because I love Green Farm. I actually used to work here. <laughs> so what is it you love about it? The whole outdoor experience, the whole that they're inclusivity to everybody, adults, children, the animals, the coffee. <laughs> Hello there, who are you? Marion. And what are you doing here today? We are here with a little uh, toddler playgroup. We love it here. It's glorious and it's a really good uh, outdoor um, experience. So what is it you like about it? The scenery, the calmness of it all uh, and the freedom that the kids have to run around. (laughs) She loves it too normally. (laughs) So... That set the scene. You get it. It's a lovely place. So let's meet the man behind it all, Martin Richmond Coggan, and find out more about how he's farming regeneratively, trying to actively increase biodiversity, and just what mob grazing is all about. We're at Green Farm in Shaddockshurst, which is about four miles outside Ashford, south, 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 uh, west of Ashford. Um, we're standing here in the first field of Green Farm which has a pond uh, that's been actually paid for by Natural England uh, to entice newts. Um, and it's enti- enticing a lot of house martins at the moment. And it? it's enticing house martins, which are absolutely lovely to see here today. From a farming point of view, Green Farm is purely livestock mm-hmm. and making our own hay. And it's livestock we really are here to have a chat about, isn't it? Because you're an advocate of mob grazing. For cattle, I'm a total advocate of mob grazing. Um, uh, that is simulating nature in causing the cattle mob to be constantly moving forward. So using electric fences, uh, you put a fence behind them, you put a fence in front of them, you make a new fence in front of them, you move them in. In our case, because we've only got a small mob of 14 cattle, uh, we move them every two days, Uh and then the, the previous front fence becomes the back fence. And so they can't go back. Right. Should, that, we, should we go and have a look at them in action then? Let's go and see that. All right, let's go and have a look. Hello. So, Martin, yeah. these aren't cows. These are pigs. These are pigs. Um, outdoor pigs, because all our animals are outdoor all the year round. Uh, they get an awful lot of milk uh-huh. that our local dairy, Plurandon Dairy, lets us have just before it goes off we typically what, get what breed are they they look pretty small at the moment these they they are small they're only three months old they're mixture they're half commercial so that they grow well and they're half two types of rare breed which i can never remember the names <laughs> okay so they're, the way, they're unique to green farm then they well they're unique to uh, they're richmond coggan pigs uh, i hope so <laughs> and they will be eventually they get a lot of love from all the kids that we have around for the charity and in terms of the wildlife that you're getting in the field as a result of doing that, is, is it working? Are you getting a real diversity of plants and bugs and birds in here? 
Yes, definitely. Definitely a diversity of insects. Um, diversity of plants. This used to be an awful lot of ragwort. Um, over the last three or four years, the pigs have pretty well cleaned that up. We've pulled a lot of it and cleaned it up. So pigs are part of the... Pigs part, part of the, of the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I would love, if, I, if, if we did any arable, then we would have the pigs out on the farm eating the residue of the arable before you planted the next crop. Right. But we don't do arable, so we try and do the next best thing. Right, we've got to get to those cows though. Come yeah. on, on we march. Hello, shrimp. <laughs> Martin, we've come through into another field. These are sheep. These are cows. That's right. Um, we, we have 40 sheep here, um, 15 of them being breeding ewes, all Romneys. Uh, one ram, who is the daddy of the 24 lambs that we've got this year. And what, what role do the sheep play? Because sheep in a kind of... Uh wildlife in terms often get a bad press don't they particularly upland farms and everything's nibbled back and there's no saplings get the opportunity to grow so why have you got sheep on this regenerative farm sheep graze differently from cattle sheep have got very very fine mouths and they will nibble little bits um they're really very good we talked a little earlier about ragwort they're really good at cleaning a field from ragwort if they're out there when it's just beginning to poke up um and as long as you don't leave them on too long and let them graze it down to a fine sword, then you're fine. So we do, we do a, a rotational grazing method. with. They're the all hiding in the shade today. It's a lovely hot day today, isn't it? They're, uh, they're all having yeah, a little rest. They, this field, one of the reasons they're in this field is it's got good shade at all aspects of the sun. So, so they can always be nicely shaded here. We found a, a pretty fresh cow pat that's that is all, fresh, isn't it? already well colonised by dung beetles and all sorts of other insects, flying insects. Dung beetles, of course, have flown in. They run a really important role in the fertilisation of the field. Cattle are probably nature's perfect fertilising machine, and the dung beetles are the first ones that start carrying the nutrients of the dung down into the earth um, I mean this is absolutely alive I've, I've ne <laughs> I, I have to confess I've never looked closely at a cow pad before but it's like a I mean it's teeming absolutely teeming one of the reasons it's teeming is we don't worm our cattle unless we absolutely have to and worming cattle will make the cow dung inert of course um, so by keeping, it, keeping them unwormed and part of mob grazing is that you don't have to worm as frequently, you don't get such a worm burden and um, that really does bring cowpats to life. It'll be like this for about two days and then it'll start getting a very hard crust. Some of the dung beetles will stay in there and do their work, carrying it right down even as much as a metre down into the soil. But in terms of what that means for the, for the grass and the soil, that's actively doing all the stuff you want it to. Absolutely, absolutely. The perfect fertiliser. Martin. Yeah. Martin, I spy cows. We've we have them. now found our lovely small herd of cows. Uh, 14 in total, five calves born 
last summer. Should we come up and say hello? Let's go and say hello to some of them. Because are they all named? They're all named, but we don't handle them very much. They're on their mothers. All the calves that were born last summer are still with their mothers. Well, and, and actually the calves that were born over two years ago are still with their mothers. Uh-huh. And they've stopped taking milk, but last year's cows are still taking a bit of milk. That one is Oak, which is the youngest uh-huh. of them all. This one is Moby. Hello, Mobes. That's Hope and Monty, who were born in February out in the field two years ago. Now, mob grazing. I want you to clarify something for me. Is mob short for mobile because you move them around? No, not really. It's that you put all your cattle in a mob (laughs) so that they all move together, they all eat together, they are forced to eat everything that's there. So it's a literal literal mob? It's a literal mob. Right, okay. And um, it's imitating nature. Uh You are constantly keeping them together, keeping them moving forwards, not allowing them to eat the new growth behind them and always keeping the grass nice and long so that it's constantly growing behind you. Okay, why do that? Because that's the best way to manage your soil and regenerative farming is all about improving soil. The longer the grass, the faster it's growing, the more carbon it's um, getting from photosynthesis, the more carbon it's putting into the soil. A good, well-managed pasture will actually sequester as much carbon as a rainforest mm-hmm. per acre. Wow. And it's also, by keeping this grass long, it has long roots, and that lets water sink right down low, so even in dry periods, you don't run out of water. And in terms of how many cattle you can have on the land, does that mean that you have to have fewer? Is it, is it sort of less really. able? Can, can you make a profit doing this? From the same acreage as land, as long as you've got enough for the cattle to be moving across and only coming back every 60 or 70 days. Your grass is growing faster. You're getting more forage. So you can actually carry more cattle than if you're grazing it down and the grass is struggling to regrow from having been nibbled short. Okay, so that does actually mean you can turn more of a profit? Definitely, definitely. And with a variety of plants in the good pastures and you've been in some of our Mm -hmm. fields, there are that's actually quite medicinal for some of the, for the cattle. There are some that are good for their gut health, some that are good for their immune systems, and so they end up being healthier. Mm-hmm. My our cattle here are outdoors the whole time. We very very rarely have a vet. We've had a vet out once recently because one was shot with an air gun pellet, but we haven't had a vet out for illness in ten years. That's amazing. So. I mean, I take it then you're kind of evangelical about this. You'd like to see lots of other livestock farmers go down this route. I would, and I'd like to see arable farmers put a livestock rotation into their rotation once every four years. Um, the cattle are the world's perfect fertilising machine. And this, that was... this whole farm is regenerative, isn't it? Because yeah. you're, you're doing these principles across all of it. How much of a change have you seen to the land since you've been doing it? Oh, immense. Um, the, the pastures are looking much better. There's much more variety of plants in them. Uh, we never ran out of water last summer. Um, you could always put your hand down in the grass and feel the soil and it was always damp. And that means presumably more birds, more insects, more of everything. It does. Of course, there's no chemicals here either, which is the other great killer of, of, of wildlife. Yes, and we also try and manage our woodland in the same way and our waterways here as well. It's, all, it's, it's got to be holistic.
So Kent Wildlife Trust and, and the farm cluster, is that, has that been helpful to you and what you're wanting to do? Enormously. I think it, it actually joining the farm cluster is what started us on this journey. When we first bought Green Farm back in 2008, we got involved with Kent Wildlife Trust because we knew we wanted to be working in tune with nature here. We weren't really farming it at that point. So when we started farming it, we just farmed like everybody else had farmed and set stocking and everything else. Joining the cluster in 2019 started getting us to meet other people with other views and other interests. And through that, we then got to know people in the Pasture-Fed Livestock Association and now more recently in the Nature Friendly Farming Network. Um, and it is amazing how many farmers are now trying, at least at some level, to go regenerative. And has it been pragmatically useful to you being part of that cluster? Yes, it's joined us together. We started our charity about eight years ago, and one of its uh, objects was to improve the environment on a landscape scale, and you can only do that when you collect together landowners. So the farm cluster we saw very quickly as a way for us to work together with other local farmers. And that started working. And then on the back of that cluster has grown the Upper Belt Water Project, which is all about holding water back in the upper reaches of the river belt so that it doesn't just rush down to the medway every time it rains. And that's collected eight or 10 or 12 farmers together uh, with Southeast Rivers Trust, as I say, piggybacking on the back of the farm cluster work um, uh, that's also you know working for nature because by wetting the land we're improving the habitats and doing a lot of other things. And so being part of the cluster means you're joining all your separate efforts together. Straight into that exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You quite like it out here don't you? Love it. Oh, many thanks to Martin Richmond Coggan there for his generosity in taking the time to show us around Green Farm. You can find out more about all of that at greenfarmkent.co.uk uh, when you can visit and so on. And they also have a rather fancy spa and retreat that you can visit as well. I'll let you find out about that for yourselves. And in later episodes, you will be hearing more about the Farm Clusters project when I'll be having a chat with Kent Wildlife Trust's Nature Recovery Manager, Rory Harding. So, that's it for this inaugural episode of Talk on the Wild Side, the Kent Wildlife Trust podcast. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did. Uh, Next time, we're going on another safari, this time around Ham Fen, in search of wild beavers. We'll also be taking a look at a super high-tech vertical farm near Sandwich, where they're looking to minimise their impact on the environment by growing salad crops indoors with no chemicals or pesticides needed. And we'll be having a chat with Kent Wildlife Trust's own Director of Development, Sarah Brownlee. This has been a Wild Rover Media production for Kent Wildlife Trust. I'm Rob Smith, and until the next time, go wild in the country. <laughs> <laughs>